The following is presented by Lanier Technical College, Concept One Pulley Systems, and Year One Classic Muscle Car Restoration Parts. Hit it! Hang on, you're now part of the fastest podcast on the planet, Bud's Garage Overdrive. Produced in the studios of Jacobs Media, located in beautiful downtown Gainesville, Georgia. On today's show, engine tuning costly mistakes, Bud's Tales from the Road, artificial intelligence tire changing stations, and special guest retired Formula One mechanic and fabricator Steve Jenner. All that and a whole bunch more informative automotive buffoonery right now. Let's kick it in overdrive. Welcome in, folks. This is Bud Hughes, resident car nut, and Bill Wilson. Hi there. Bill Wilson, of course, is our astute producer who keeps us together every week. Tim is under the weather. And it's pretty cool having an F1 retired mechanic wandering the streets of Gainesville. That doesn't happen often. No, well, Steve Jenner, who's going to be our guest today, is... uh, he started out as a mechanic slash fabricator and has worked with Lotus and some great other teams. And he's got a great story to tell. He's not actually wandering the streets. He 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 does has a normal life. He's not, you know, wandering down the road between the curbs or anything like that. But he's a got to know him when I was teaching at Lanier Technical College. Um, he was involved with the Panos Group and they were big supporters of the program. And Steve and I have uh, have made it through. 20-some years of working together, and he's got an interesting story to tell. But first, I want to get to some tales of the road. I just came back from a trip. You did? Uh, I was on the road delivering a Corvette. You know the yellow Corvette I delivered to my cousin a few years ago? I had built it for him. Yes, you You saw it in the garage, actually. I saw it in various stages of completion, as a matter of fact. Yeah, it was disassembled when I got it. Anyway, I put it together. He came down for a visit and saw it and just was blown away because it was yellow. He loves yellow Corvettes. So... He got that one. I delivered that one to Buffalo a couple years ago. And I told him, uh, we were talking, he says, if you ever find a newer one that's yellow, uh, you know, let me know. And I did. I found a 2002 one owner, uh, and it was a six-speed. He wanted a manual transmission car because he wanted a manual transmission car, and Mm -hmm. this car was beautiful. So I loaded it up on a Featherlight uh, trailer with a gravel guard and all that stuff on it and uh, strapped her down and took her up to Buffalo but beforehand, I had a little truck trouble, kind of, sort of. Uh-oh. I know you you guys think I know, you know, everything about cars and all that kind of stuff. I have people ask me all that. How do I fix this? How do I do that? And But even I can get crossed up, you know, in just communications. And this will be husband-wife communications, if you will. You've never had those problems, have you, Bill? <coughs> <clears throat> all right, let's not go there. So, I have a truck all set up. A friend of mine has a uh, custom shop up in Dahlonega, Georgia. That's in the North Hills here. It's called Spotlight Customs. And that uh, that painter and custom guy is Mike Bowen. And he's got an F-250 with a 7.3 Power Stroke diesel in it. Dually. So I'm loaded for bearer, you know. I got this thing ready to go. He had just had the whole top of the engine redone, the turbo and all that stuff. And this thing is a monster. Uh-huh. So I'm hooked up and I bring it, bring it home and I'm going to load the car up the next day. Waiting to see what the weather was doing because it wasn't a covered trailer. And uh, I noticed diesel fuel under the truck. Never a good sign. A puddle of diesel fuel. So I get under the truck and I'm looking and I can't find the diesel leak. I start the truck up. I can't find the leak. I can see where everything's been cleaned up and, you know, taken care of because of the turbo replacement. 
And the only thing I could find was the power steering lines were leaking everywhere, probably because they had to move them around to get at the uh, turbos and, and things that they were replacing, the shop was replacing. Plus, the truck's got a quarter of a million miles on it. Did I mention that? <laughs> but that's normal for a diesel. That's, sure. That's just broke in. So I call Mike up, and I said, man, there's a puddle of diesel fuel under this truck. He says, I don't get it. He says, I just paid X amount of dollars to get all this fixed. And he was upset, and I was upset. He says, well, bring it back up here, because I'm going to take it back to the shop on Monday and have him look it over. I said, okay, fine. So meanwhile, I have no truck to get me to Buffalo, and I'm kind of on a little bit of a tight schedule because you're just, a, you know, you are just a slave driver, Bill, at, you know, oh, getting, yeah. getting this thing produced all That's the right. time. So I call my neighbor who hauls horses around. And uh, to goes to rodeos and, and horse shows and things like that. And he's got a bunch of trucks. So he says, well, take my flatbed dually. It's got a Cummins diesel in it. And, you know, it's a four-door and you'll be comfortable in it. And thank goodness he stepped up to the plate. I hooked up to the truck. And I'm getting the trailer on the next morning, and or the, the car on the trailer. And Jan comes out and says to me, where was the diesel fuel uh, leaking out of Mike's truck? I said, right there over in the driveway, the sloped part of the driveway. Yeah. said, that wasn't from Mike's trucks. That That's from the guys who were cutting trees the other day. Oh, no. So, so I did all this to, and I, I worried Mike to death, the guy that had the original oh. truck. I called him back. I said, you're not leaking diesel fuel. It was from another truck. But anyway, down the road we go. Had a great trip. Went down, uh, you know, went through the Blue Ridge Mountains, through Asheville. And, you know, this truck is just a honking, you know, machine oh, yeah. going down the road. No problem pulling a trailer. Didn't know the trailer was even back there. Uh but on one of the roads we took, the scenic routes, I didn't want to get on, you know, the major highways. I like driving on the scenic stuff. One of the roads we took was going to be closed on the way home. So they had to reroute us through Cincinnati. Oh, no. Oh, uh, yeah. You ever driven through Cincinnati? Oh, yeah. Oh, On my way yeah. to Michigan and back. Yeah, yeah. 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 Cincinnati <laughs> at rush hour with oh. a trailer oh. coming home. The trailer was empty. But... Uh, Man, oh man! At least you got to listen to WKRP while you were stuck. In yeah, traffic. there you go, there you go. I should have. Yeah. Where's Lonnie when you need her? What was the other girl's name? Jan, Jan, Jan Smithers. Yeah, Jan Smithers. Played Bailey Quarters. Yeah, I was always a Jan kind of guy. That was always like a Ginger versus Marianne yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, Jennifer yeah. versus Bailey. Yeah, yeah. Okay. A lot of people like that librarian look. Boy, we sure get off the <laughs> point sometimes, don't we? We gotta find something nice to say about Cincinnati. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> so we we settle in Lexington for the night. Lexington, Kentucky, and we we get parked and, you know, get Molly out of the truck and, uh, you know, we go to a restaurant that's dog friendly and we all have a great time. We leave Lexington about 8.15 in the morning. We get 45 minutes down the road on Highway 75 South coming out of Kentucky, and it is closed between exits. So there was, an, there was a crash, a tractor-trailer crash, crash. Unfortunately, there was a fatality involved. But it was five miles up the road. Oh. So we sat for five and a half to six hours standing still because the alternate route was not available to tractor-trailers. And the cars couldn't get off because we're all hemmed in with tractor-trailers. And there was nobody trying to direct us off anyway. It was just kind of a, you're going to have to hang out until we get cleared. Luckily, people take care of each other. We got out, we're stretching our legs, and I'm walking the dog, and we get to visiting with folks and stuff. Pretty soon, I noticed there's three or four campers all uh, driving together, and they got their trailers with them. They start opening the doors up so folks can use their restrooms. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, 9.30 in the morning, uh, second cup of coffee, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? 
especially us older guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll get there one of these days. I'm there. (laughs) I'm there, pal. Uh, But the rest of the trip was uneventful, except coming through Pennsylvania. Oh, another lovely commute of mine. Oh, man. The transitions from the bridges to the roads Uh are, are like caverns. Yeah. And I'm bringing that trailer across, and it's empty now, you know, so it's aluminum. And every time I hit one of those, the trailer's off the ground. <laughs> so I, I get to a rest stop, and one of the taillights is dangling from the oh, wires. It, it literally broke off the trailer. Oh. Uh, luckily, it didn't come off and hit somebody's car or something like that. So when I got home, I put new lights on the trailer and the back of the trailer. And, but that's, uh, that's my trip to Buffalo and back. Well, thought you had a good time. Yeah, we got to visit for a little bit with some, you know, the folks that got the car and, mm-hmm. and their cousins, and it was good. Yeah. Just kind of, you know, kind of quickened back. Yeah. Not, a lot, not a lot of downtime. But we listened to a couple uh, books on, uh, not tape, but audio books. Audio books, yeah. And uh, one of them was, gosh, it was like 12 hours long. Oh, yeah, some of them were very long. And it was, a, you know, it was very good. Kills the time. Oh, yeah. So. I got a new car, Bill. You did? Yeah. That's kind of like Imelda Marcos getting a new pair of shoes, well, but that's okay. No, it's still no, kind of no, a, no, 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 no. Kind of an event. Anyway, uh, it was time to let the Corvette go. Um, great car. Loved it. Um, mm-hmm. One of the prettiest cars I've ever owned. Uh, but the practicality with the puppy and, uh, eh, it was just time to let it go. And something else caught my eye. A Mustang Mach 1. Another six-speed car with, you know almost 500 horsepower and so i couldn't help myself it, it screamed out to me remember when remember when tim went shopping for a truck for his wife and came home with a new challenger yeah I remember it's that. that kind of thing i remember that yeah <laughs> yeah he gets reminded of it a whole bunch <laughs> but the, where i'm going with this is the new cars you know when you get them there are very few modifications you can make without getting yourself into trouble and if you get into the computer end of it you have got a real issue going on there's a story floating around out there, and I went and did some research on it about a gentleman that has a Hellcat. I'm trying to think what they called it. It's a special edition Hellcat. Let me see. If I, oh, it's called the Hellcat Jailbreak over PCM tampering. You know what a PCM is? Uh, photocopy never mind, machine. Never mind. Never mind. Never. Yeah, that would work. Yeah. yeah that was pretty good. Hey, Rich, make it power. It's the power control module. Anyway, it, it controls the engine. You have more computers in your little car that you have, your new car, than the space shuttle had. Really? Back in the day. Wow. Yeah. That's know. scary. Well, you've got probably eight or nine control modules in the car uh, that control different things on the car. Sure. Yes, and you've, you've dealt with some, some small recalls and stuff on your car, so you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But this owner was trying to get more horsepower out of his Hellcat. Now, Hellcat has like 875 horsepower to begin with, but that wasn't enough for the guy. So, apparently, he denies that he did anything to the car, and Stellantis insists that he did, Stellantis being the parent company for Dodges. And uh, and they say that once you get into their power control module, it leaves a tracer. And even though a lot of the tuners say they can delete that tracer, you can't in the Dodge vehicles. And uh, they say that it was due to, uh, due to tampering, he's got a $36,000 repair bill. Wow. He lost a cylinder in the engine. So he said the only thing that he ever did to the car was take the resonator off, uh, which is a, that's a post-catalytic converter mm-hmm. component, so it doesn't affect the emissions control or anything like that. It, it, it 
affects more the sound of a car. If you want it to have a certain sound, you can take that off and replace it with something called an X-pipe, or there's various um, different itiner... Not, 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 there's different forms of an X-pipe. Itinerations? That was, I was iterations. 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 That's the word, yeah. iterations. Different iterations. And Borla makes one that I'm using on, on my car. But... Uh, don't mess with the computer because it can get very, very costly. Well, see, this scares me too. I still haven't settled this thing yet. But you, you uh, look at you look at all the stuff we go through with malware on our computers and our tablets and our phones, yeah. and you think about what they, people with too much time in their hands can do by introducing bugs into our our vehicles. That's a very frightening thought. Uh, it's going to get more frightening as it goes along because yeah. uh, you know when I was in the dealership, and this was you know back in the dark ages, we could still um, get into the computer and talk to the manufacturer to find out what was going on with the car, um, you know, that we didn't have a manual for. Yeah. And they would actually get into our computer and figure out what was going on with the car. Mm-hmm. You know, it was back in the 80s. So you, you take that now and the changes. This, this stuff is, uh, this car less, had less than 1,000 miles on it. So somebody did something. Oh, yeah. But uh, I hope he makes out with it all right. But uh, if you're messing with the computer, you got an issue. You know, Scotty... Check your tuner carefully. Scotty said it well. He said, the more they overtake the plumbing, the easier it is to stop up the drain. Huh. Okay. Scotty. From Star Trek. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Did they have problems with the plumbing? He sabotaged sabotaged the the Excelsior-class vessel in order to help Captain Kirk steal the Enterprise. Okay. It was fun. That's way over my... uh Way over my pay grade. <laughs> Flux capacitor, I kind of had an idea of what that was yeah, about. But yeah. uh, anyway. I had someone try and sell one of those on Swap Shop last week. A Flux capacitor? A, a DeLorean with a Flux capacitor. He said he's getting rid of it because he can't get the Flux capacitor fixed. Oh. Yeah. Hard to get parts for. He called back, though, and said he sold it last week. It wouldn't be hard to get parts for, though, if he went to year one. Even for a DeLorean yeah, with a flux capacitor? They probably capacitor? don't have DeLorean parts. Yeah. Yeah, but right now they do have a special going on with uh, graduates. If you put in class 23, you can get, a, you can get some great things from them. Oh, uh, that's super for cool. being a high school or college graduate or just being a regular folk, you put in that, that code and you can get a, a discount on your parts. That's a great idea. It is. And I think I mentioned on one of the previous podcasts... Um, Assembly manuals, because I'm in the assembly process of a car I'm building that I took apart a year and a half or two years ago. Man, and they, they are so important when you're trying to get all this stuff put back together. Check out those and all the other things I got. And I still got to get the coloring books I talked about from year one. Yeah. But check them out at yearone.com. Uh, moving on. Artificial intelligence. We frown on any kind of intelligence in this podcast. Oh, you're not kidding. But there is a company called Robotire that has come out with a machine. It, it, I, I should say it's not just a machine. It is a bay's worth of equipment mm. that takes the wheels and tires off the car, hands them off to a uh, technician who puts them on the tire machine, and the tires get changed, blah, blah, blah. And the technician hands them back to the robot, and the robot puts them back on the car. And uh, I, they're using them in some of, the, some of the big tire changes, and they say that you know, does it twice as fast as a human. And, you know, this, I think it was, yeah, three, four years ago, I went into a McDonald's and there was nobody in there but a kiosk. Right, yeah. Because, moving away from help. Yeah, yeah. That's the same thing that's going on here. Because, uh, say the machine will pay for itself in a year and, uh, you know, you don't have 
uniforms. Nobody's calling in sick. You don't have all the insurances and stuff to pay. Yeah. So that's really great. Until 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 this behemoth thing breaks down, and then you got to find a technician that can work on it and fix it and get you back up and running because you don't have the support staff hired to back it up. Well, they have a tremendous support staff, from what I've read. Okay, so from what you've read, from what I've read. You know, okay. I, took, I took my kids in my high school class, automotive class, I took them to a tour of the Doraville uh, assembly facility back when it was uh, here in Doraville, the GM facility. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time they were building Oldsmobile cutlasses or whatever. But I took the class through this, and there were a bunch of robots doing some work. So I had the kids write a paper, as you would as a teacher when they come back, you know, what did you like, what did you not like about the, you know, the, the tour we took, all that. And what did you see as a job opportunity? And I had several very sharp kids that said, if you want a good job opportunity, you need to get into fixing the robots and the machines that move all the stuff around, because that's where the future is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't far off the mark. Yeah. I remember talking to a guy that was in the technical education industry several years ago, saying there's a whole generation of people that climb up poles and fix electricity wires that are about to retire, and there's no class coming in to replace them. No. Because people aren't taking those jobs anymore. That, that, that really is where the money is. Well, it's, it's where the money is, and it's, where it's, it's hard to replace people and, uh, you know, get them to do the jobs anymore. So what do you do? You go out and invent machines to get it done for you. And, yeah. Uh, you know, say la vie. Yep. Today's special guests are actually two guests. We have got a guest host that stepped in here as the... Uh, You've heard him on the Green Ford segments on the podcast before, and that would be Aaron Hughes from Green Ford. Aaron, welcome into Bud's Garage Overdrive. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to being on the uh, Overdrive podcast. I always enjoy listening to him. I like to hear my own voice this time. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) See how that goes. Well, Aaron is an avid F1 uh, fan, and I'll explain why that's important to our uh, our next guest, and there aren't a whole lot of them wandering around in Georgia, people that work for F1 teams, or people not only that have worked for F1 teams, but have worked for Colin Chapman. That would be Steve Jenner. Steve, welcome into Bud's Garage Overdrive. Great. Thank you, Bud. Pleased to be here. Well, we're, we're pleased to have you here. Um, this has been quite a journey, uh, as, I've, you know, as I've had a chance to talk with you and and uh, where you came from, where you're at now, and, and how it's all evolved. And uh, working with somebody of the stature of Colin Chapman was obviously a, a big deal. And uh, so we're going to dive in. What started the whole car thing for Steve? Was your dad a race car driver? No, my, was, my, you know? my, my mom and dad were. My, my dad was in the RAF in the Second World War. We, I grew up in a little tiny village in Detling, Kent. Uh, I was very interested in anything with wheels when I was a youngster and believe it or not uh, I started buying uh, motorsport magazines when I was seven or eight and the first one I bought was motorsport which I still subscribe to today so this is even more coincidence which was very bizarre but very fulfilling I was one of the lucky people in life that I had an early hero who was Jim Clark who drove for Lotus at the time, and Colin Chapman. And some years later, I got to work for uh, Colin Chapman at Lotus, at Team Lotus. So that's always been 
a part of my life that I just I always pinch myself or but can't believe that I actually work for one of my heroes. Oh, that that's uh, something not a lot of people get to do, and and to meet your heroes and things like that. Tell us about your first uh, foray into racing, because kind of that was the thing to do back then, rally racing and it, stuff. It, well, it was. I couldn't have. I always wanted to be a race car driver, but I was never good enough. But and I couldn't really afford to uh, build my own race car to get into. At that time, Formula Ford was the cheapest form of um, Formula V, which I believe it was quite big here in the States. But I couldn't afford so to, to go to build my own race car. So rallying was very big then. Of course, the beauty of rallying, it was an easy, very economical way to get into motorsport because you could use the same car as your daily driver as you could to go rallying at weekends. So I started off in a local motor club, started off doing night rallies where they start at 11 o'clock at night and go through to about 6 o'clock in the morning. Um, was pretty successful, won the Southeast Championship one year, and then I started getting into internationals where we'd go and do international rallies in Belgium, which was part of the coefficient to European Championship, I believe. So I'd done pretty good on that, but I'd, I never really had the right cars. I, I had a sponsor, but uh, by that time, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was getting very competitive, and uh, there were some pretty crazy machineries out there. I ended up having a a Mark II Escort RS2000, which is a Group A car, uh, which had about 150 horsepower, so it, was, it wasn't a really powerful car. At that time, the Aldis were dominating because they were four-wheel drive, and then some Lancias and some other stuff come in. But um, I did, kind of my highlight of my career, I guess, was done the RAC rally, which was part of the World Championship. And I kind of finished, I think, third or fourth in class. So, And after that, I kind of... Um, gracefully retired <laughs> but uh, to concentrate on my Formula 1 career I guess Now Steve were you a uh, were you building those cars? Yes, I'll, what yeah, what took you from the 7 year old child that was interested in cars to becoming a builder? And well then... that's a very good question actually um, I'd always wanted to you know I'd, I had a mentor which was our next door neighbour who was a gentleman sadly no longer with us called Charlie Day he done speedway riding he was one of those, he was an amazing guy he could build anything he he, he built a, a early early weed whacker strimmer out of electric motor on the end of a pole and he helped me he was my mentor I, you know I, he, I learned to weld myself I learned to build gearboxes and engines because I never could afford to have anyone uh, do it for me and learn to paint and panel beat but he was so then I when I got to the age of 15 16 I wanted to be an auto mechanic or technician, whatever you want to call it. But my dad was quite well connected. Even my dad was a builder in the village, and the local town was Maidstone, which is the county town of Kent, which is about 35 miles southeast of London. Anyway, believe it or not, he couldn't find me an apprenticeship anywhere to be a mechanic. Wow. So I ended up doing an apprenticeship as a mechanical engineer for a company called Thomas Tillings, which, funnily enough, was at that time owned by an American company. It was part of the Roots Chrysler Group. Oh, right. Okay. So, and so uh, that was great, really, because I got to learn about everything. And, you know, we had sick, we'd have, during the apprenticeship, we'd have our own uh, apprenticeship shop and tool room, but then we spent six months in each department, which was... Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, so that's, and then I, and then that got me 
obviously then by that time I'd, I'd bought my own first car and I'd mucked around with it, put a bigger engine in it and bigger wheels, different suspension, as you do. Right. So, so, but, that, but I'd always had this burning desire to, to, to work in Formula One. No kidding. You know, and I know in, uh, in Britain, the apprenticeship and, of course, in all the motorsports has been such a big thing. Um, and I still feel like I, I love that part of motorsports where the apprenticeship and the learning is still part of that. You don't just go to school and then all of a sudden you're on a race team. You're, there's a huge apprenticeship and experience element. And, and it's still present in motorsport, and it's a beautiful thing. That's right. Sure. That's yeah. right. Well, I mean, you know, obviously, Bud and you know well of this. We, when I was working for Panos and we, when Mr. Panos bought Road Atlanta back in 97, and then we turned the Road Atlanta driving school into the Panos racing school, and we built the... Well, in the end, we had nearly 100 of the school cars and series cars, and uh, we needed technicians, and that's when we reached out to Lanier Tech, and that's where Bud come in and started something which was, is very successful still to this day. So, Did, Were you involved also with the guilds back in England? Yep, city and guilds. Okay. Yep. So was, yep. That, was that part of your... You know, here we have middle school, we have grade school, middle school, Correct. high school, yep. technical school. Yep. Uh, how was how did when did you go into the guilds or when did you go into this apprenticeship? When, when I was I was nearly sixteen, I think it's fifteen and a half, okay. and it was a day release program. I went to to college, the local uh, technical college, I guess you'd call sure, it in, yeah. in Maidstone, mm-hmm. two days a week, and then we had evening classes as well. I got the basic apprenticeship after uh, three years, and then I took another year to get the advanced. It wasn't called the advanced, but I can't remember. But that was my city and guild, so I had two certificates. I had the standard one after three years and another advanced one after four years. So when you when you decided that you wanted to go racing and work for, you know, F1, how did you make that transition from where you were at going to school and doing your apprenticeship and, you know, getting into the F1 shop? I was very, very lucky because I'd worked for a couple of Formula Ford cars, um, one was Mike Thompson's Quest, who in the end run Johnny Herbert, who turned out to be a Formula One driver for Lotus and Benetton and Jaguar and Stewart. And I helped Mike at weekends in the evenings build his Formula Ford cars. So I had some experience there. And then I saw an advert from Team Lotus in Autosport, which is a weekly publication looking for fabricators. And I wasn't a very good fabricator. <laughs> so anyway, I went up to, drove up to Norfolk. I got interviewed on this kind of white picket fence outside of the shop and by the chief designer, he asked me a few questions, showed me a few blueprints and said, how will you make this? Well, don't ask me, bud. Somehow I managed to get through and I got a letter <laughs> the next week saying, can you start in two weeks? Really? Yeah. How, how do you make this out by the picket fence? I don't know. <laughs> I never even got to go in his office. He, I, I told the guy at the reception, or in the, I think it was actually maybe in the inspection department, because at that time they were, Lotus was located in this beautiful old stately home called Kettering Hall, which is a bit of history. During the World War II, was used as a US Air Force's kind of operation center, because as you know, still to this day, there's US Air Force bases in, in Norfolk. Sure. And of course, during the Cold War, there was all the cruise missile sites and the rest of it. So, yeah, I never got to go in his office. He interviewed me leaning up against the picket fence. 
First day of work for Colin Chapman. Tell us about it. Very scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, at that time, Lotus had already been a big deal, not, oh, not only in Europe, also in the States, That's with Indy right. 500 as That's well. That's right. Sure. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. One, the Indy was Colin Chapman in the Lotus 38. Beautiful car. Yeah. Um, it was scary. I, I kind of didn't really have a lot of tools. Thank God, with the guy running the fab shop, had been with Lotus forever, gentleman by the name of Roy Franks. Once again, he turned out to be a mentor for me. And he kind of, you know, I, I'd, I'd learned how to weld, but I'd never, I'd never only used a TIG welder once. I'd learned to weld gas welding, I could braze, and I'd learned to, on a MIG welder. But I'd never done, of course, when you get into a Formula One, most of the stuff is, t is TIG welded. The only time you use a, 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 a MIG welder would be to use, make the tooling or make jigs. And we, we still at that time was doing a bit of brazing and uh, um, and we'd make the oil tanks, which was, I, I never perfected it, was, you know, to, to use aluminum rod and a gas torch to, to that was very that's tricky because you know yeah, you know you know aluminum can just disappear like that yeah it's too hot so somehow i got past the th three months trial and then as i said i was never the best fabricator never the best mechanic but i befriended a guy by the name of phil denny who was running mario's car at the time and he took a shining to me. I think because I'd stay late at night and I'd, he'd come and ask me and I'd, I'd do anything for him. So I guess I progressed because I was, I always made myself available. I was, as I say, I was never the best, but I learned a- You learned to do it, yeah, you just do yeah, it, yeah. yeah. I learned a valuable lesson that, you know, if they asked me to do something, I'd do it. And I wouldn't say, no, I can't do that on it. So I, I guess now we call it multitasking. <laughs> I don't know what we called it back then, but. So what years are we talking right now? We're Steve? talking 70, 77. To so, which is a lot of times the, the golden era of yeah. Formula One, for yeah, sure. It, it, and it, that's it, yeah, I also mean, prior to carbon. So everything was yeah, fabricated we, out of aluminum that, exactly, steel. Yeah. Exactly. We, we didn't, the, in 1980, the, the, first, the first two teams to build carbon tubs was Lotus. And ours was very different from McLaren, which was done over here in the States uh, by a company called Hercules Aerospace in Salt Lake City. They done the McLaren MP1, uh, which was a proper carbon tub. They'd, um, um, they'd have a lot of experience with, with obviously the, the space, you know, NASA and uh, aerospace stuff. Um, ours, the one we built at Lotus, was a carbon fiber weave with a Nomex honeycomb and we'd lay a big piece of sheet out on the floor and we'd have a template and we'd route it out and we'd fold it up. This is, we'd, we'd fold it up like, you remember the cars we used to get on the back of a Weetabix packet where you made this race car, you cut yeah. it out and folded it up. You, yeah. So and then it said, this sounds really low tech and it was, but it worked. So we'd have this huge piece of plate glass that we'd lay it on so we knew it was flat. We'd route it out. We'd put the aluminum bulkheads where they were meant to be. We'd fold it up with a band in it. You know, the, what you band up when yeah. you ship a package. We band sure. it up with this band. And then we'd put these bobbins in and we'd fix it. To, and then it would go into an oven to cure. That was the first Lotus carbon tub. Wow. Well, because... Colin Chapman was a structural engineer. Correct. They and, trained. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, he trained. Yeah. He was bit, bridges and stuff yeah, like that. That yeah. was yeah. 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 He wanted to build buildings out of aluminum. Correct. So he took he took the knowledge that he had and transferred that to building 
was doing tubs out of aluminum. Correct. What, how was how were they doing tubs out of aluminum? Where was it just a bag and a hammer, and they were you no, know, we, making they, the they tub? No, they got the, the first. Oh, I actually, which was very scary. After I'd been there about nine months, um, we were running the wasn't a very successful chassis at the time, so we had to rebuild one. And I had, and we had a jig in the fab shop in the middle of the floor. And uh, at that time, we'd started to use a lot of honeycomb, which is obviously used, as mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, in the aircraft industry and aerospace, which obviously is, you know, depending on the thickness you wanted and, and, the, and how strong you wanted. It was like a 20, 22-gauge skin, and then you could have, like, it was half-inch honeycomb, three-quarter of an inch if you used for bulkhead, and it was bonded together. So we were using, at that time, a lot of honeycomb, but there was still... Uh, some flat sheets, uh, aluminum. Most of it was where we could. We used hard rivets, not pop rivets. Right, yeah. Uh, and we'd use a, a glue called 410, Redux 410, which is pretty toxic. It's been banned years now. There's a lot more advanced. So, but... but so, <laughs> takes all the fun out. It does <laughs> take all the fun out. And it, it had the awful smell. And when you mixed it up, it looked like yellow. It looked like English mustard, if you ever seen yeah, it, or yeah. American mustard, yeah. that bright. But it, and it went off, but it was super strong. So, but obviously, they were very light. The, 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 just the tub itself, an aluminum honeycomb tub, would weigh about, you know, a hundred less than 100 pounds. When we went to the, to the Weetabix carbon Kevlar one, I mean, it was like 55 pounds. Wow. So the weight saving was, and it was stronger. Oh, okay. So Collins' theory was, you know, you either went faster or you went lighter, and that made you faster. Yeah. Was that part of the, the whole thing Yeah, he, he, Colin Chapman got a bad rap, although some of his stuff was pretty near the mark. His idea, and I'm, I, can, I, was, I was present in the drawing office when he said this to one of the draftsmen, one of his designers, he said, this is what I want. He said, I've tried for years, I've never achieved this. He said, I want a car that's so light, but it's strong, but it does the race distance, and on the, on the warm, on the, after the checkered flag, it starts to fall apart. <laughs> okay. Perfect. He had the, <laughs> and of course, his cars got a bad rap because you had Jim Clark killed, Mike Spence was qualifying for Indy, the, the, I think the year after Jim Clark got killed at Hockenheim. And he lost quite a few drivers. Ronnie Peterson, I was there when that happened in Monza. That wasn't really a, a structural failure. Jochen Rint, when, the, when he won the 72, died at Monza. Um, he still won the world championship because he had enough point, first posthumous or whatever the word is, world champion. So he, Colin got a bad rap because they all, a lot of people thought his cars were dangerous. And actually it stopped him at that time employing some of the better drivers. But, there were, but, but they all knew that, you know, if you signed for Lotus, if you drove one of his cars, you had a good chance of winning. So, you know, what kind of young, hungry race car drivers are like, they want to win. Sure. Mario Andretti. Mario was, you know, I was lucky. The... Chapman wrote this paper, which was a 33-page, and he sent it to all his top engineers and designers. He came out with the Lotus 76, which is a complete failure. They'd had such success with the 
Lotus 72, which was the first wedge-shaped car, Correct. first car to have side radiators. It had some aero on it, but it wasn't. He knew there was a lot more out there. So he came up with this dossier that, look, this is what I know, this is what I don't know. Would this have been the player's car, that, that yeah, design? John Player, yeah. John Player's yeah, yeah, yeah. So then the 77 was a bit better. The 78 was the first car that had these it had brushes. It didn't have, it wasn't a full ground effects car, didn't have sliding skirts. So it, then, of course, the 79 was the, but by that time, Mario was driving the 78 and Ronnie, they won some races that year. Then we move into um, 78 when the Lotus 79 come out. Still to this day considered one of the most beautiful uh, Formula 1 cars out there. That was a full ground effect car. Um, basically the underneath of the car had big tunnels like you see on all the cars today, which is basically an inverted wing as you know, rather than... Mm -hmm gave it fly it sucked it to the sucked ground to the ground but the other thing that was a big invention was the sliding skirt and if you looked on those 70s early 80s cars they all had this big side panel which was hollow and the skirt material which which just went up and down in the side pod it was on springs it was on like piano springs and they had ceramic uh, on the bottom that touched the track so as soon as um you got up to a certain speed it would suck the car to the track. And we had drivers, test drivers, and it, even Mario and Ronnie and this other gentleman, I can't remember his name, but they were, they couldn't believe that they could keep their foot down and the car would just suck itself to the track. It was vacuuming itself yeah, down yeah, to the track. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. As a driver, that must have been terrifying. It, well, it, well, <laughs> even to this day, I, you know, I still, still keep in touch with some of the guys who do World Sports Car Championship, IMSA and F1, and they say that, you know, it takes the engineers or the guys to say, look, you, the data shows, because nowadays, there's, there's, you know, the data, the driver can't lie anymore. He can't say, well, I was flat through that corner, and they look at the telemetry and look at the screen, and they get back in the debrief saying, you was only 72% on the throttle. On the throttle yeah. Back then, we didn't have that. So they had to be convinced that you can go flat through turn three. Yeah, wow. you're right. Yeah. Scary. Super scary. You were there really during the heyday. I yeah, mean, what well, a wonderful was, time know, to be I there know, in the late 70s. I know, and then... The only reason I left, and Lotus to me was the epitome of a family. There was only 30 of us, two mechanics per car. Now, you know, there's hundreds of people in the Formula 1 team now. Yeah, I was reading, uh, you know, 1,200 McLaren yeah. em employees, 1,200 people, yeah. and Mercedes, yeah. about we had, 1,200 we had, people. There. When I first went to Lotus, there was 28. By the time I left, there was 36. <laughs> we only had two mechanics per car. We had one gearbox guy. We had three or four five at the most fabricators and you got to remember back then in those days as bud knows well you know everything was fabricated on the car sure. yeah you yeah. know and that was pre-cnc cnc were just coming in but by the time i got to mclaren there's quite a lot of cnc so between carbon and cnc small parts a bit like nascar today we we're talking about put a lot of fabricators out of work sure yeah right yeah we had we had talked uh, off air about uh you know the transition to a spec car correct well all the race series in in some respect went to to spec cars you correct. know whether you were running a lotus or later on whether you were running a panos g-force car or whatever that's right it was a spec car you yep. know that that met certain specifications yep. and you could buy your car wherever you wanted to buy yep. it from and now 
if you talk to them, some of the mechanics I still keep in touch with, but Red Bull and McLaren and uh, a couple of guys at Renault. You know, when we used to be at the track, we used to repair parts and we'd, we'd, we'd weld stuff at the track. They're not allowed, they don't do that anymore. They go to the parts guy in the, in the, in the back of the garage. They say, I want a front wishbone. It comes in a, in a, in a sealed uh, bag with all the, all the, all the fasteners, all the, all everything. Puts it on the car, that's it. Yeah. And it's all, it's all been. Yeah. It's all specced, so there's no tweaking right. or anything that's done right. on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Barcoded, yep, radio frequency chipped, that's all of it. that. That's yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, wow, all that for sure. So, so you made the transition then from Lotus to McLaren. Yeah, that I did. Well, I, I, should, I was trying to save my marriage, ah, <laughs> my first marriage, because my wife was getting, and she was a chartered accountant um, in London. And we lived in Kent, so I only come home at weekends. And of course, if it was racing, I wouldn't probably see her for two or three weeks. So I thought, well, if I, if I, you know, I knew some guys at McLaren because you obviously you all be mixed with all the guys at the track every time you go testing or go to a Grand Prix. And back then, there was no limit on testing. Some days at Lotus, we would be testing three days a week, and then we go to the race. Yeah, right. So we were running. You know, we may run the car before the trucks left. And if it was a European race, then we'd fly out and the, by the time we get there. And there was no, we didn't have garage set up guys. We had to do all that. Now yeah, they right. fly they fly in the guys that set up the garage and the, the mechanics now got it easy. And the only thing they got different, when I first got into F1, we only had 12 to 14 races a year. Now they got 23 races a, a year. Yeah. But of course, back then, I guess it was the same if you looked at the days at the track. We, we had unlimited uh, testing. We did have a separate test team in the end, um, but a lot of the same guys were used. So, but of course now they're not allowed. They only have two, three preseason tests. Two, I think. Yeah. Um, so it probably. What, what was your budget? You know, obviously you go to McLaren. It's a. It's not a family. No environment. Yeah. The, the budget. Your budget and stuff. Your difference. The, the budget the at McLaren people. was a lot bigger than Lotus. Um, but of course. Um, in those days, it was probably, I, I hate to say a guess, but probably no more than 20 million. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, today, they got a budget restriction of 150, but back in the Michael Schumacher days, when Michael won all the championships with Benetton and Ferrari, they were spending 500, 600 million. Well, they were testing around co- the clock. Yeah, exactly. At their own track. Exactly, yeah. but of course, back then, when Michael Schumacher... Uh, was in his heyday. They were doing. They were using ex- far more exotic materials, and they were going through engines like you know. Sometimes they go through two engines in a day. Now they're limited, as you know, so you can only use X amount of engines in a year, X amounts of, of transmission. So, but you know, 150 million is still a lot of money. But they have to be a lot more careful now. And you all remember, now they. They spend so much time in the wind tunnel. They only the teams only get allowed a certain amount of hours a, a year for wind tunnel time. Tell us about some of your drivers at McLaren that you got to work with. Well, Nicky Lauda was was a great guy. He kind of when Nicky Lauda came in, he he really upped the ante. We'd, previously, we'd had John Watson and Andrea De Cesaris, uh, but when Nicky Lauda came, he was uh, a breath of fresh air. Great guy. Um, would come in the workshop, would always talk to the guys. Um, 
Yeah. Well, he was known as a bit of a technical guy for sure. Yeah, he was. He, compared he, to any other yeah, driver, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mario was at Lotus as well because was, yeah. Ronnie Peterson was a great hands-on guy, but they they muck around with Ronnie's car first, second day of practice. He couldn't get anywhere near Mario. Mario was, was good with car setup. Then they put Mario sitting on Ronnie's car and Ronnie go quick. So you're right. A lot of those guys, if you was a technical driver... Uh, and not, no, Nigel Mansell was never a technical driver, but Nigel Mansell had so, he was the bravest, one of the bravest guys I've ever worked with. He, he had no fear, Mansell. And, uh, but he wasn't a technical guy. But now, Mario and Nicky were definitely... As I say, the, the story, I've heard the story you just t- told before about Peterson and Mario. Like he would, Mario, it was almost like they would always end up putting Mario set up in Peterson's oh, cars, yeah. I heard. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then Peterson was always way faster, but Mario really did all the work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. that's, that's very, I can tell you from someone who was there, that was very true. Oh, but, that's nice but, to hear. But um, Ronnie was a sweetheart guy. It was terrible how he got killed at Monza. But he was a, just a laid-back guy. And, and so was Mario, really. And, of course, the great thing about Mario is I got to reunite with him all the years later when he run the Panos in, 19, in 2000 at mm-hmm. Le Mans. So it was, we, we had a big laugh over that. And I got a great picture signed by him when he came to Road Atlanta and he, he drove the Panos LMP 900 and he actually drove the school car for some demo stuff. So, yeah, but, yeah, Mario was a great guy. Well, that's wonderful. From McLaren, where did you, where did you head? I, I kind of went on a... We've all heard of the... Um, the Paris Dakar big mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, the rally. Yeah. Well, there was a. They paid me crazy money. I was a contractor. So they, though, Austin Rover were building. They were the ones that done the Metro 6R4 when the Group B rally cars all the crazy with crazy horsepower, and then it all got banned because they lost Henry Toivonen and they lost three or four drivers in a year. Those those cars were lethal. Anyway, so they decided. I don't know if you remember the Rover 800. It was sold over here as the Sterling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bit of a bit of a lemon, but anyway. So they decided <laughs> they was going to build this Paris Dakar car based on the Rover 800 slash Sterling. So I went there to build the chassis, and it didn't last long. It all the, because the guy that was running it, John Davenport, he was in charge of Austin Rover Motorsport. He hadn't told the the directors, the money people, they were doing this car, and then they had some big bust up and they come around and said what's this project they didn't even know about it but so then I went from there one of the engineers lived in Brackley and he knew Jeff Hazel at Spice and Spice then were doing the camel light cars we won the C2 championship with Gordon Spice and Ray Ballum and Fermin Velez who drove over here for Scania drove the Ferrari 333P and won a lot of races so I got into Spice where we were building a lot of camel light cars for the US market and we've done GTP cars for Pontiac and uh, Chevrolet so that's what brought me to America I'd always been fascinated with you know working in America I'd been over here off the Grand Prix that so we went to the Glen Long Beach obviously and we done the crazy race at Phoenix and then the one in stupid one in Vegas and mm-hmm. I think it was around the Caesars Palace parking lot wasn't it anyway but we're going to go back there obviously later this year but it'd, it'd be, be a, a little different yeah be a little different yeah <laughs> So that's what got me to America and uh, run Spices. We'd say we, we, we'd already won previous year the C2 Championship with Gordon and uh, Vermeer and Ray in, in Europe. So we'd, so 
the idea was they wanted to start building and repairing the chassis here when we was down at Norcross, off, just off of Peachtree Industrial. That's where the spy shop was. So done that for about on a year and a half. Then a kind of friend of mine had left and gone to Nissan, which were then starting to get really good results with with Jeff Brabham and John Morton. And uh, so I went out to California. We were lucky. We won three IMSA GTP championships, won Sebring three times on the trot. Um, great car, great designer, Trevor Harris, and a very brilliant guy called Don Devendorf, who was the brains behind the. And we never saw him in the daytime because you know we all heard the all the cracks and the jokes about oh he's a rocket scientist well guess what Don <laughs> Devendorf was, was a, a real for, 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 for Hughes for Hughes Aerospace which at that time employed a load of people in South in Southern California so we'd only see Don at the week at the week and then we was in this little crummy little workshop like a like a rabbit one in a little suburb called El Segundo which was near Manhattan Beach, which was very nice. And we had, once again, we, were, we only had like 25, 30 people. Well, then Nissan decided because we won the championship the first year, they said, well, we better buy this team. So they, Nissan North America bought Electromotive and turned it into Nissan Performance Technology Inc. Moved this down to this brand new shop in Vista. And we went from, I don't know, 30 odd people to 200 people Oh wow! In less than two years, and our budget went from like Don had to, to show you how, how you know it was run on a shoestring when Don owned it. He remortgaged his house every year, so during the winter, so he'd remortgage his house to pay all the guys through the winter until the Nissan budget come in in in, in end of January for, for the Daytona 24, which is obviously the first race. So then all of a sudden, you know, went from a very small budget to 30, 35 million a year to run just a national sports car. So we, it was crazy. It was, it was a great time because we won a lot of races. Yeah, and that was we, a hugely and successful and we car. Used to, and we used to qualify the motor, which was basically based on a, the Nissan 300, the V6, which, you know, mm -hmm. great, very big turbo, single, when the Nissan 88 Nissan. We run a big, a big single turbo. Wrote, um, it was it was located on the top of the gearbox. We qualified a thousand horsepower and rate, and we race it at about seven eighty. Wow! Yeah, that, back That's in incredible. those back, back in those that, days. Back in those days, and you, if you looked at all the early pictures of the Nissan when Jeff Brabham and then of course Chip Robinson came on board, he won a lot of races for us. They could run the wing straight up because we had so much power. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was a great time. It wasn't was it? great time. <laughs> yeah. From Nissan. Yep. You go to Mazda. How, yeah. How did, well, how did that, 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 the, the, how did that. Well, that's a good because yeah because I love my time in South, South Southern California. Oh yeah. And it was you know we I was being paid crazy money. I had a condo on the beach at um, Oceanside which was just down the road from Camp Pembleton. Beautiful. Of course, I don't know, I didn't need her because we were doing, once again, back then. You're never there. I was never there, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I used to, we used to get a limo from the airport and drop us off and I'd walk down to the beach, walk on the pier and I may be home for two days. Then I was off again testing because we had an open wheel project at the same time. We all, all had all these different motorsport projects for Nissan and Nismo, which is obviously the Japanese arm of, uh, of Nissan Motorsport. 
So, but I could see that it was, there was too many people. It was, it was, in the end, they'd send me to every race, but I couldn't touch the cars. I had to take two of my guys. So, so I could just see it wasn't me. So the guy, when I first went to Nissan, we had a lovely guy who was from South Carolina, North Carolina actually, called Ashley Page. He was a team manager at Nissan when we won the first. Well, he left and come back and worked for uh, Performance Friction. Well, you know Performance okay, Friction yeah, yeah, well, because yeah. obviously yeah. they helped us out and we started the program at the college. And uh, they didn't get on with, with Don Bagoon, who was then the uh, head of Performance Friction. So Ashley got a proposition from a guy named Dixon Ives, who was the motorsport manager at Mazda. And they'd won the previous year's GTO championship with Pete Halsmer and Price Cobb. And they wanted to go GTP racing. So myself, another English guy named Mike Coy, who was the transmission guy, we and one more guy, we got kind of headhunted from Nissan. So uh, we set up shop in, I think it's called International Boulevard near Charlotte Airport, just down the road where they had a Mazda training centre. So we run the the, and it was a beautiful looking car if you look back uh, but we ran, ran the four rotor Mazda engine which was a little tiny engine which allowed us to have huge tunnels I mean it was, we had so much downforce it was crazy but the problem with the four rotor was that it had an awful lot of torque no sorry it had an awful lot of power but no torque no torque yeah you had yeah. to wind them up so we had we had the fully adjustable trumpets on it which went up and down with the revs we tried all different things but but the biggest problem we had with the car uh, was quite embarrassing and i nearly got well i did get into trouble over it no we, uh, yeah <laughs> me getting into trouble and racing yeah anyway yeah. but the car kept ca catching a light <laughs> because on a four rotor mazda it produces like 1900 2000 degrees of heat at the headers Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Lee Dykstra, who's designer of the car, nice guy, well thought of, and he was the IndyCar technical steward for years after this. But he'd done his packaging so tight that everything at uh, the back of the car was so tight there was you couldn't get any air movement through the rear end of the car. We tried cutting holes in it, all duck, nothing would happen. So fortunately, the year before, the... Mazda Speed in Japan had run the four-rotor car in a car designed by Nigel Stroud, and they won Le Mans with Johnny Herbert, Bertram Gashow, and I can't remember the other guy. Anyway, that was the first, obviously, first ever Japanese car to win Le Mans. So I thought, well, I'll give Nigel a ring, because I'd worked with Nigel at Lotus. He was one of the engineers when I was at Lotus. And that, that's another thing, you know, and it's still same to this day. When you work with all these guys over the years, you know, I always tried to keep in touch with some of them, you know, it, it pays big dividends down the road if you if you can you know ring them for your advice. You know this, you do it just sure. like I do. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I rang Nigel and said, "Yeah, you got to do this, do this." So we were going to a test up at Putnam Park near Indianapolis for a test, and so we done all this. Ashley didn't tell. I didn't know this until Lee arrived. So we're getting ready to go out. Lee Dykstra arrives in his rental car, comes down. He said, "Who, who done this? Who done that? I'm going to get." You. <laughs> so Ashley stepped in and thank God he said, "Well, Steve done this." Well, why? I, just, I don't like it. You've, you've done this. You've done this. It's my car. Well, that's the actual one. Well, it's not actually your car. It belongs to Mazda. So he said, "Well, don't worry." He said, "He's got this information 
from Nigel Stroud. And as you know, Nigel designed the car that won. And I'm like, I don't care if it, it is, you know, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, fortunately, I kept my job and it did work. So, but, but then, unfortunately, as usual in motorsport, when, especially when it's a manufacturer, they tell you it's going to be a five-year project. Well, halfway through the year at Mazda, the first year, we ran out of money, run out of budget. We, none of us could understand, well, why have we done this? Then we found out that they'd spent some of the 83, or whatever it was, I can't remember what year it was, budget, the previous year on the GTO car, which was meant for the GTP car. So, of course, by June, we were out of money. So Dick had to go back to Mazda Corporate and ask for, ask for more money. Ah. So he got the money for the rest of the year, but then they had a president change at Mazda North America and Irvine, and um, they canned the, pro canned the program. That was it. Done after one year. Wow. So we talk about Mazda. Mm. Did you get involved with Jim Downing in that group yeah, Jim, at the time? Yeah, I did, Jim. I've known Jim for years and years, since the days when I first came over at Spice, because before Jim built his own car called the Kudzu, if you remember, which was very, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. Was very successful. <laughs> sure do. <laughs> and... Uh, so um, Jim had a spice, so I'd, I'd known, you know, well, we'd go down there and he, he had a, one of the problems with the spice was if you had it, if you, if you went off and you nudged the front wheel, it usually took out the rear front wishbone, it usually took out the, the foot box. And so that was, it, was, it was quite a job. You could do it in about three hours, change the foot box. You'd have to kind of grind it out and take the rivets out and then you put a new foot box in because the, 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 the rear of the wishbone was on a rose joint and it went into the... So anyway, so I got to know Jim. And of course, Jim, what a guy. I mean, you know, I can remember the first couple of times he wore the hands device going down pit lane. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like the hands device that everyone has to wear now, which is very short. This hands device came down to his where you wear a belt. Yeah, right. And he could hardly move. He would look, walk down pit lane and we'd say, hey, Jim. Well, he couldn't turn his head because it was so restricted. <laughs> so we, we all laughed at him, but guess who had the last laugh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. So from Jim Downing, Mazda, that era, how did you circle around to the Panos group? Well, I'd done some contract work. I was, I was doing some um, work with a couple of companies in England, uh, getting them... I actually cut the Formula One teams, Benetton and um, Lotus even, and Williams. I was getting, because, you know, obviously all the fasteners that they use are now NAS, National Aerospace Standard, or AN. So all that stuff is mainly produced in Florida or Texas or in California. Sure. So I had quite a good little business. Then a friend of mine, uh, Graham Everett, he was, he was one of the first guys that, when Don bought the track, I think he was, Graham was the first guy he, he took on to run the driving school, which, of course, back then we were running the Nissan 300s and the 240s. Sure, yeah. uh, And he, he needed someone to help him, so I got there, and I was only working. I said, I, don't, I, said, I work, you know, in the four hours a day. So I done started that. Then it all took off when Don decided he's going to build his own school car based on the Esperanti with a fiberglass body and as we discussed off air, basically a Trans Am chassis. We built, we built the first seven at Road Atlanta in the garages at Road Atlanta. And then Don decided 
he called us over, me and Gromo, one day, well, look, Dan needs some work because he's still developing the Esperanto. It's not going to go in production. He needs some work. I'm, you know, you've done a good job building these first cars, but I'm going to give it to, to Dan to build. Can you help him? So we, so then we built 20 more for Road Atlanta, 20 for Sebring, 20 for Moss Sport, and we built the women's. So in the end, we had over, over nearly just about 102 cars. Um, so then... As you know, we, we started the program, I think it was in 2000. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, uh, yeah, the linear college program, motorsport yeah. program. Uh, and then I think it was about 2004, 2005, um, the CEO at the time, uh, who come from Lola, it, we, I, I helped him out with some of the guys over when they were doing the, one of the Indy cars, because at that time, G-Force was still doing, building the Indy cars. And he wanted me to come over and run the project management department at Broadway Avenue. So I left the school uh, and went over there. And we would, well, my first project was uh, a Skip Barber school car to replace the old cars they'd had forever, which I think the original was a Crosley. And then we had the Star Mazda, which was a big project for us and a couple of other projects. So that, I'd done that for about a year. Then they, in 2000, when Don bought G-Force, who made the Indy cars, and he bought Van Diemen, which at that time was the largest manufacturer uh, of small race cars in the world. Well, Don kind of took the company on, paid a lot of money for it, and left the same people in charge. Well, we all know sometimes what happens there. So it got into a mess by, I think, 2000, end of 2005, they were really coming on stream, making all these star Mazda cars and some Formula 2000 cars, which were all coming from Van Diemen. Well, they couldn't get the parts. And they'd had two or three guys in to run the company and they'd all been run off by the previous owners. So David said to me, David Bowes, who was the CEO at the time, he said, oh, you're, you're, the, you're English, you're the perfect guy to go over there and sort that out. I said, no, I don't think so. Anyway, he kept on to me, so almost as a dare, I said, yeah, I'll go over for two weeks and I'll give you a you know, report what it's like. So yeah, I went over there and... Somehow I got talked into going back and running it and we caught up with the parts and then after two and a half years uh, we managed to find a buyer and then in between that time we built some cars for Ford of Brazil, we'd done an, an EcoBoost car, we'd done a, remember the, in the first uh, ethanol car, that we'd done an ethanol car which also went to Brazil. Um, we had a custom inquiry from an Indian gentleman uh, who had some big sponsorship from um, from a company called um, I think it was a, it was a tire Indian tire company. So we sent a fabricator out there to teach him how to, and we franchised that he could build cars under license in India. I went out there a couple of times, so that was a very interesting um, project, as you can imagine. So then I came back after about two and a half years and uh, done some other projects for for Don. Um, kind of ended up being a contract. I didn't have an office there, but I'd done contract work, done some work. Don had, by this time, partnered with a guy at Shanghai and uh, we were optioned to build some school cars for Shanghai. It never happened, but I got involved in that project. Done some other stuff. Um, that, that basically took me up to when I kind of semi-retired before um, then after Don died, kind of Dan wanted to see me, so I kind of started doing some stuff for Dan and 
took a bit of a hiatus during some of the COVID. Now back doing some stuff for Dan. So full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's next? Well, I'd like to slow down a bit, but I've got a couple of other projects. One that, as you know, a good friend of ours, Chris Sperry, who helped with the MVT program, and he was the marketing director at the school. Then he was one of the legal beavers, because he's one of these clever guys that's got a degree in marketing and, a, a, and he's a law degree. So we come up with an idea which we're still floating around, because, Bud, you know this better than anyone. So many guys embracing, whether it's NASCAR, IMSA, IndyCar, they're kind of fly-ins or weekend warriors. Well, you know, as I'm getting older, we've lost quite a few good guys. And there's a thing that Jackie, Sir Jackie Stewart started years ago called the Grand Prix Foundation. So Chris and I are thinking about a thing called paddock relief, where when someone gets out of racing, they get injured, they haven't got insurance, they haven't got this, they haven't got that. We would uh, be able to help them out with their medical expenses. And, you know, so that's what, may lay in the future it's not definite we've got a lot of interest uh, and we've had some help from Grand Prix Foundation yeah because a lot of times that's just done as charity stuff exactly you need something more yeah. organized yeah because yeah. Yeah. you see you see a lot of guys at the racetrack that are our age or older correct and you know they've given they've given up a, a normal life I guess that's for right. that life that's right whatever normal that's is right. and uh, and all of a sudden it just it just flew by like that and now yeah. we need they yeah. need help. What really spurred me on to think about some kind of relief for those guys, as you say, when they get older, was the guy, he's an English guy, he was the team manager at Rail Letterman. And he said, Steve, you know, um, I've got guys going over the wall, 55, 60, 65, one's had a knee replacement, one's had a hip replacement. I can't get younger guys to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm thinking, well, what happens to those guys when they, when they retire, you know, I mean, okay, a team like Rail Letterman's probably got good benefits, but you know better than anyone, some of these small teams, they, 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 they've got nothing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and right now in the, in the world of motorsport, especially in the, in the sports car racing, there's a huge demand. Absolutely. Teams are getting bigger and bigger Absolutely. And, and more and more cars. Yeah. And, and, and it's a great world. Yeah, and a lot of these teams now realise, which from an economic standpoint is great, they can have a smaller shop, they, 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 and I probably know 14, 15 guys. They just fly in for the first practice session. They do the race. They may stay there after the race is finished to prep the car as much as they can for the next race. They load the truck. The truck goes back. Don't even unload it at the shop. They've probably just got a warehouse. So, so the, the team owners save on, you know, save on rent for, for facility they save on wages because they don't have to have these guys they just have them for the race that's right pirelli challenge a lot of these lowest even indycar they, they a lot of those guys are flying just like you know mm -hmm. bud from nascar yeah. yeah now of course most of the nascar team those guys have probably got good benefits and got insurance but a lot of the smaller guys have got nothing not necessarily okay even the nascar guys are in wow. the, the same kind of deal because there's so many of them it's like they're it's like they're subcontractors Exactly. You know, in their position yeah. that they're in. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it may be decent money, but it's hand to mouth type of money. Right. You know, you're not putting it away and right. because you're never going to get old. You're, right. you're in racing. That's right. And, yeah. and you know. we, we, Chris and I were at a, a function where a lot of these guys were, were there. It was a Panos deal, but it was kind of like people who worked for Panos over the years. A lot of them started their own business. 
And by golly, these guys are great at their job, but what they're not good at is getting the proper licensing, getting insurance, thinking of the future. Because as you said, when you start, you're working hand, hand to mouth. Mm-hmm. So that's where we've, uh, another reason we thought about this paddock relief, where you know there's plenty of trade sponsorship and drivers. We, we've spoken to a lot of people. We don't know a launch date yet, but yeah, even if you can just help them pay some of their medical uh, bills or, you know, you can help them along the way. Well, we're going to have to have you back on and get Chris in here well, and talk about this because yeah. it's an important thing. It, it is, and you, we've all, we all know those guys. And it doesn't have to be racing. No, you know, if, you, if you're a resto mod shop or you're, yep. you know, anything that's a little off of the, 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 you know, the beaten path as far as building cars and yep. things like that. One of the interesting things I found out at Petit Le Mans talking to your students, and I call them our students that have graduated from right. the, the program, yep. that have been with teams 14, 15 years, they're not burned out necessarily. They're bummed out. And I, let me explain what I mean. They used to be able to, to tweak the car, and it was exciting and, and all that. Now it's check the air pressures and, and wax it because absolutely. there's no, That's absolutely right. there's no uh, yeah. inventing as you go. You're absolutely right. And it's just like you look at some of the IMSA cars and Pirelli World Challenge. In our day, where bearings and uprights and wishbones, you needed to constantly change and inspect the parts. Now these cars are so bulletproof because the parts are so well made. Sure, yeah. Well, CNC machines Absolutely, and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, eye-opening stuff for sure. Steve Jenner, thank you for taking the time to be with us Anytime. here. I'm glad to be here with you guys, and uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to catch up on. We will. When we meet again. You will. You are welcome back anytime. Thank you. To Bud's Garage Overdrive, Aaron Hughes, thanks for uh, sitting in and, and giving us uh, your insights and Thank you for having me. Steve. Uh, Thank you. Best best to you as you move forward. Well, you know, but we we've managed to keep in touch all these years. And so we'll we'll, we'll, and we'll stay go in forward, touch. yes. Thank you. <laughs> Bill, have you ever heard of a small block Chevy? On this very program, many times. Many times because the small block Chevy engine has been the mainstay of countless hot rodders. The size and simplicity are a big benefit of these engines. Concept one pulley systems makes these engines even easier to use. They do so by providing custom-built aluminum brackets, pulleys, hardware, and a range of AC compressors, power steering pumps, alternators, and water pumps. Then they arrange a serpentine belt configuration to fit the front of your engine and vehicle application. They'll match the components of your needs and give you a prize-winning outcome. From basic to full-on, they have a system just for you. So if you're going to put a small-block Chevy in your car... Nobody to call but Concept One. From basic to full on, they have a pulley system for you. Check them out at c1pulleysystems.com or call them toll free at 1-877-785-5397. You'll be talking to the founders of the company. Awesome. It is awesome. Well, that brings us to time for some thank yous. I want to thank Steve Jenner and Aaron Hughes uh, for coming by and uh telling their story, asking the questions. And uh, Concept One Pulley Systems, Linear Technical College, Year One, Muscle Car Restoration, folks. Jacobs Media, the studios, and producer Bill Wilson. Yeoman's job today, Bill. Thank you, sir. I enjoyed uh, it. Well, we, we appreciate everything you do. Let's not forget about Bud's Garage, the radio show on terrestrial radio. 
featuring local guests and their expertise. And you can also get that in podcast form at all your favorite podcast sites. And next week's guest is going to be a local NASCAR historian. That is Cody Dinsmore. Mm. Uh, he is a young guy and, and an old soul. Let's put it like that. Young guy with a young, old. He is a young guy with an old soul. Got some great stories. Hopefully the old guy with the young soul, Tim, will be back next week as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. You <laughs> Remember to keep between the ditches, shiny side up. And we will see you next week right here at Bud's Garage Overdrive.